Hello and welcome to the MT Podcast, where we discuss the operational issues taking place across the market. For access to hundreds of exclusive interviews with industry leaders, head over to our website, manufacturing-today.com, or subscribe to the latest issue of the magazine and our newsletter. As we head into the festive season, the team here at Manufacturing Today has been reflecting on the turbulence that 2022 brought to the industry and the ways in which businesses have had to overcome supply chain disruptions and labor shortages. What has been remarkably inspiring is the importance placed on community and people. And this month, there have been three companies that we've had the opportunity to speak with where this has been particularly pertinent. In this episode, you'll hear from Dan Grady, the Vice President of Manufacturing Operations at Hercules Industries, Michael Vettergren, the Group CEO of SPI Global Play, as well as Nathan French, the Director of Street Lighting at ASD Lighting. These three leaders, based in the US, Sweden and the UK respectively, are making an impressive effort to prioritize the well-being of their teams. We begin with Dan Grady. In his conversation with our very own Daniel Baxi, Dan shares his insights into how the success of Hercules Industries rests firmly on its employee stock ownership plan, which has also helped shape its company culture. Hercules is a 60-year-old company. It was founded back in 1962. Um, and over the, the course of that uh, the period of time, the, the organization has been privately owned and family-owned. The Newland family has owned the business up until uh, towards the end of 2019. And it's just a great family legacy, um, you know, from pretty humble beginnings uh, that the company started um, as a supplier purely into the heating and air conditioning world as it pertained to contractors of you know, not only basic supplies like tools and uh, things like that, but but some basic consumable items. And, mm-hmm. and as the uh, organization evolved and grew, there there was great vision by its founder into what Hercules could become. And uh, that, that cast of that vision was absolutely passed on to uh, the second generation of the Newland family that that took that vision and absolutely ran with it very hard over the next several decades. And um, one, one of the great things in the Newland family, and, and I, I do call them today, I call them our previous owners, because uh, in 2019, we had an ownership transition uh, still privately held, but the Newlands uh, transitioned the company to a 100% employee-owned company. So the, the ownership uh, was transferred to the employees. And I, yes. I think so it's a, a pretty remarkable milestone uh, here recently. Uh, that that cast of that vision um, that our previous owners ran with, we, we felt it was important from an organization standpoint. We still wanted to keep that family legacy, but also start to evolve the the, the family legacy of employee ownership as well, which is which is where we are today. It, it, starting in those humble beginnings, um, you know, just a, a, a very small building that they started in in Denver, Colorado. You fast forward to where we are today, uh, 60 years later, uh, 20 locations, four manufacturing centers, and uh, just a just a great geographic footprint, not only throughout Colorado, but Wyoming, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas. So just a great area that we cover and service back to the heating and air conditioning contractors. So, you know, one of the one of the more exciting things in my career was was being a part of that. Uh, ESOP ownership transition, going from a family-owned business to 
now a uh, 600 employee uh, family owned business. And and I think what was exciting was that at the t- end of 2019, the, the transition of ownership, although new, our day-to-day operations didn't change. That was until the pandemic hit. And, you know, going through the, the pandemic and, you know, c- combining that with the fairly recent new ESOP transition, all of a sudden, the, the concept of business ownership and making decisions quickly became very real for us. Mm. And, you know, the, the impacts of COVID, uh, we were very fortunate through all of that because uh, with, within the state of uh, Colorado, we, we were able to exercise our ability as a manufacturer and a supplier of heating and air conditioning products um, that, that we were part of a critical infrastructure. We, we were, again, through, through being pretty fortunate, we did not shut down our facilities at all. We, we took some dramatic steps all through the pandemic to ensure, number one, our, our employee safety and health and well-being, just being able to put into practice some uh, very stringent measures that, you know, not only protected our employees, but, but were following uh, local, state and, and government protocols as well. In, in hindsight, through all that, I mean, at the, at the real beginning of it, you know, there, there was some anticipation of, wow, we're, we, we could lose a significant amount of our revenue because of this pandemic. And the absolute polar opposite ended up happening. <laughs> our, our revenue um, exploded. And it, what was very uh, interesting through all of that, we were in, in being a, a part of that critical infrastructure back into the industry we were able to not only maintain our stocking levels. Now, granted, we had some major supply constraints that were coming in, uh, particularly on the raw material sides. Mm-hmm. And even from the, the wholesale distribution side, uh, many of our vendors uh, ran into supply constraint issues. So what we were able to do is to is to make sure that we were, we were operating and being able to supply uh, the, the necessary products, particularly on the manufacturing side, that, that really allowed us to you know, not only leverage relationships back through our raw material and um, uh, manufacturing distribution network on on that side, but we were really able to become a, a, a reliable source to our contractor network. And, and I think we were able to leverage that pretty well. Um, did we? Yeah. Did we have some some impacts of COVID? Absolutely. I, I don't think any business was not um, unscathed or, um, got out of the, got out of the pandemic with, yeah. uh, with zero issues. I, I mean, globally, I, it, it was just so impactful, but, you know, being able to manage our way through that. And, and even under the ESOP model, we, we were able to make some decisions quickly and, and the ESOP model really puts the power of the, the running of the organization, you know, back into the hands of the employees. I mean, they, no matter if you're a warehouse worker, you're a production worker, uh, you're an exec team member in sales. You you have a say as to what's going on within mm. uh, in the operations of the business, and you know we we were able to uh, quickly address pandemic needs, safety needs, and concerns very very quickly. And you know by by being able to do that and acting quickly um, and judiciously, uh, you know, and again at the forefront was our employee safety, uh, safety, health, and well being. We we were able to to really. Uh, allow that revenue opportunity to grow and 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 supply what was needed back to our customer base. On the people side of the business, an employee. When I was going to ask you about employee ownership, do you think you could perhaps touch on some of the build up to that kind of ESOP decision? Why why was it taken? What the context was there, and and then yeah, how it yeah. kind of reflects the the value that you place on the employees. 
You know, and it, boy, just just a great question, Daniel. It, the single greatest asset within our organization are the people. You know, being able to partner uh, with with people who you go to work with every day mm. and and see them as a fellow business owner and a partner in the business is just something truly remarkable. One of the great things from our, our previous owners, and we've been very, very fortunate, they were involved in the day-to-day operations of the business, which was absolutely fantastic. Uh, their guidance, their wisdom w- was really able to set the stage for the, for some great things to happen. And, and I think the, the good news behind all of that are our owners continue to have birthdays. You know, by, by them continuing to have birthdays, we, we were really able to leverage and tap that, uh, those pearls of wisdom that they all had, um, as far as guidance and, uh, protecting the organization. But at the same time, too, as, as, as people age and get older, um, they also have to start thinking about what are the next chapters in life. They're they're business owners, and you know to to be able to say, yeah, this Hercules thing is absolutely great and wonderful. You know, they also have to take a look at you know what what's best for them, you know, personally. And and get, you know, going through, they they had uh, really several different options as far as ownership transition within the organization. They could have gone the private equity route. Uh, they could have sold out to a competitor. And and both of those options, even from a, a dollars and cents standpoint, probably would make a lot of sense. One of the greatest things is that what and what was a, of core value to the, our previous owners was that they would uh, the, the the legacy of not only the family but what the organization has built over sixty years was threatened, and and we did not want to lose um, that not only that legacy but the Hercules story as well. So through a, a great network at at their board level and their ownership level of talking with you know consultants and peers throughout their network. Um, and in a very faith-based ownership, they they, they operate uh, their business uh, with with a tremendous amount of their Catholic faith at, at hand. So through through some not only external guidance but a but a lot of prayer, uh, the, uh, the the idea of employee ownership was floated at them, and it became abundantly obvious to them that even though the the return on investment, although much higher um, through a private equity or competitor buyout, you the sacrifice of losing, you know, the legacy of what the family had built would would absolutely be jeopardized. So the the concept of employee ownership, when floated to them, became much more obvious that it was important for our previous owners to turn the company over back to the people who have gotten them this far, and that that was where the the employee ownership uh, concept really dove in. And obviously, I suppose it's also come at a time when the industry as a whole is facing kind of, or a lot of industries are facing. You know the challenge of of labor shortages. How I suppose how important a, a gesture or, or or how how what does it what difference does it make? You know from the employee side to know that they're being kind of supported and, and valued. You know that that was one of the great things when when we when we made the announcement of the ownership transition to an employee owned company. You know, great companies and and we were guided through this as well. Was that great companies when becoming an ESOP. Uh, would continue to be great companies. Bad companies who transition to ESOP continue to be bad companies. <laughs> we also had to become uh, very self-aware that just because the ownership transition happened and the, and the date uh, took place, 
um, we still got up every morning. We came in and did the the duties and responsibilities that we were responsible for. There wasn't this amazing light switch. You woke up the next morning and go, wow, I'm a business owner. I can set my own schedule. I can do what I want. None of that came into play. Um, we, we kept tremendous focus, um, you know, not only on the, the day-to-day duties and responsibilities that we all had, but now the the concept of changing your mindset to doing not what I'm told, but actually going through that thought process of what's the best way, what is best for Hercules. And that started that concept. Um, it, and it's taken a while to germinate, uh, you know, no, no doubt about it. The, you know, you just don't wake up and have best practices overnight and being able to transition in particular for employees who had been there 10, 15, 20 plus years. Now we're able to really tap the the brain trust of what they have to be able to to say, you know, Hey, you, you've done this before. You've been around. What What's the best decision we can make right now? And putting that power back into the hands of the employees just, just became a, a wonderful opportunity for us to really leverage just the uh, the, the time, talent, and treasures that, that our employees had. The, the eighth question touching on sustainability and just how you are incorporating that throughout your product range and operations more generally. Yeah. So um, again, as uh, as a uh, manufacturer of HVAC metal products, you, you kind of go through again with kind of uh, and how we're producing it is just you know, again through the network of, of being able to use mill direct coil. Um, people think, boy, how much scrap do you actually produce? And do we produce scrap? Yes. But the beauty behind it, the the, the metal scrap that we produce. 100% of it is recycled. We, we work with local regional um, scrap yards uh, that are in and around our facilities that we're selling our scrap back to them. And then that, that scrap yard is then taking that material, selling it back to the steel mills. So uh, it, it's just a great recycling process that we have uh, on our metal products. So even though theoretically there, there is scrap produced, the scrap produced today is making the next coil delivery that's going to be coming a few months down the line, uh, which is great. Um, and, and as part of that sustainability as well, we we also recycle our cardboard as well. So we 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 I, I don't have the figures in front of me, but the the number of tons of cardboard uh, that we recycle uh, based upon how our products are packaged is just tremendous, and, and being able to you know put it back into again, the, the next carton that's getting delivered uh, down the line uh, to be part of that sustainability effort, I, th- I think is just vitally important because it, it would be foolish for us to promote uh, green products or uh, sustainable uh, products, even that, that our vendors sell to us that we sell through distribution. Yeah. Uh, we, also have to, we also have to walk the walk as well as part of our operation. It was encouraging to hear how valued the team at Hokies Industries is. And I especially enjoyed the sense of pride Dan discusses, which has continued to strengthen the foundations of the business. This is also true at SPI Global Play, a specialist in leisure concept development. In this segment, I have the privilege of speaking with Michael Vetterkren, who shares how the business's international footprint has challenged it to respect and support diversity, not only for its team, but for its customers as well. Michael, could you tell me a bit about your expertise and from you as the group CEO, what vision did you have for the company when you joined it? Where did you want it to go? I started the Swedish division, and of course, my vision has changed under the years. 
So when I started, I wanted to be the best company in the Nordic area in Europe. Our ambition today, uh, because today we are 24 companies in the group, we are selling worldwide. We are providing products and sales through all the continents to all the type of segments. So our goal today is to be the market leader in the world within this segment. Alongside that, could you tell me about the process of how the company works from start to finish? When you work with a client, what does that look like? We have a lot of different, um, as I say, different companies. We have 24 different brands or 24 different companies. They are specialized in different areas. So some of them are for play, some of them are for sport activities, some of them are for adventure activities. So by combining all this knowledge, we can provide a quite unique competence and a quite unique a product to the end client. So when a client comes here and they want to open something, of course, uh, or they, they need our products, we need to understand what type of client it is. So a shopping mall has different need and a, an attraction part. So first of all, it's important that we understand what the client wants to achieve uh, with why they are contacting us, not only to buy a product, or uh, we need to understand the background, what they need to achieve. Okay, mm-hmm. McDonald's wants to sell more burgers. Then we need to provide something that increases the sales of burgers. If an attraction park is developing something, we need to understand what type of age group, what, what type of, uh, of, uh, of um, target they have so we can create something for them there. By, by having the sales force and also some distributor all over the world, we get the local knowledge. So we, yeah. co- we call us local company, which means we're a global company, but with local presence. So we try to always to be near the client sure. and to understand the local market because the market in the UK is not the same as it is in, yeah. in, in Saudi Arabia or in, in China. It's different type of market, different type of need. People behave different. Uh, people play different. People have different free time, leisure time, mm-hmm. and, and, and concepts are different. So we need to understand all this to be able to provide the client the right the right product. This is why it's important to be local in each market. So by having a local present, we know what's going on in the market and we're being approached by the different type of clients. Then we're going back in our organization and we select, when we understand the pro, what they need, we select the team that needs to be, be doing these jobs. It could be a specialist in trampolines and in play, for example. So we put them together together with the design team from the different companies and we create a final presentation with all these different needs that they have or product that they want to to integrate or concept. Uh, we, we normally try to explain that we are selling concepts for them. A concept is a food, it's a turnkey thing. And this is what we are good in because we, we don't only look at product we want to sell, but we also look at, for example, the logistic. How do people move inside the building? What, how is the best layout? What is the best area to have the cafe and the, and, and, and the taller area and combine with the junior area? And what is, what type of activities can you combine in a center? So by having this expertise, the client don't need to do how to call it wrong investment or, 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 um, approach, spend money in a wrong layout. 
So yeah. we try to avoid that and we try to come with our expertise. In the end of the day, it's the client that makes the final decision, but at least we have the knowledge and we advise them. So we are more a partner and advisor than a selling company for the clients. I have a note about the company's digital transformation. How have you seen technology evolve and support the company to, I suppose, perform at optimum level? Yeah, we are working more and more with all these type of social medias and uh, and internet and and, uh, and digital marketing and all this. But in the end of the day, is the relation between two people that makes this to happen, and it's also uh, the reference and the good how do you call it the good reputation, uh, the good performance of our client. If we if we can generate good profit for one of our clients, everyone wants to copy that. Every yeah. this is a good reference. So yeah. successful customers to us are the best marketing we could have. How are you celebrating fifty years this year? We did that in London two weeks ago. Oh, lovely! <laughs> so we were having a big exhibition in uh, in uh, the Excel Arena in London. Uh, it was the Ayapa show, European amusement show. Uh, so we were celebrating there. So we invited all our clients and employees to the O2 Arena. And we built, we have built on the O2 Arena, we built the Boom Battle Bar. Um, it was a, as a concept that we created and uh, is, um, it's a quite successful story. Uh, a company that started 2020, like two weeks before uh, COVID, and they have been successful building up, or we were together with them successfully building up all these units that they have in the UK. And so we took that site, we booked that, and we invite all our clients. So after the show, we took uh, the cable car from the Excel Arena to O2 Arena, and we have a fantastic party the whole night there with food, games, and uh, and drinks and dance. So it was a real, it was a real action party. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that. I think that. Um, that's a nice place to start talking about the company culture. It sounds yeah. like that that is an aspect that you make sure to look after really well. We are an international company with a lot of different cultures. Yeah. And um, not only in within one company, in one country, you have different type of people and you have different cultures. Now we need to consider that we are a multinational company with different offices and we all need to cooperate together. So everything, of course, start with respect. We need to have a big respect for each culture, each person, each way of living. So, and of course, our biggest challenge in the company is communication. Because if I say something to a Swedish colleague, I know exactly how they understand it. But if I do it to an Italian, it's a different way of taking in the information. So by learning this and by implementing that and having that culture in the company, it's important or, or um, it makes us successful. So respect and understanding of different cultures. Then, of course, a winning mentality. We, we like to win. Uh, we want to win an order. We want to have the best uh, play centers or or activities or leisure centers in each country. We want to have the most successful client. So by having a winning culture that we want to win everything, 
is a part of the success too. Considering the challenges, um, the measures that you have in place to overcome those challenges, what do you want for the company going forward? If you look at a five-year scale, where would you like to see the business? We, we're having a couple of different programs or, or plans that we are running. So one of them is that we are trying to change the whole company to a more environment-friendly system. Yeah. Uh, so all our processes, all our products, everything we are reviewing and see how we can adapt it. This is, this is the demands of the market in the future. It's also the demand of the authorities in the different countries. So we need to adapt everything to that, that part. That's one of the things. We, we have also a big organic growth plan, which means that we will grow organically within the different departments. And of course, we will be stronger in some of the key markets that we are now uh, targeting. So we are, for example, entering the American market at the moment, which haven't been a target market for us in the past, but for the coming five years, it's a target market. Are there any kind of last thoughts that you want to share with your team? I, I would say that this is our company is not one man show. It's a lot of fantastic individuals that is doing amazing jobs, fantastic development, fantastic designs and fantastic efforts to make this company the successful company. So I would share that with them. I would share the success with the, with the great team that we have. Considering how far-reaching SPI Global Play's operation is, it's wonderful to hear how the company is prioritizing every member of its team, regardless of their location. This approach ties in quite nicely with ASD Lighting's core values. As you'll hear from Nathan, the projects taking place at his company extend into its community as well. He kicks off the interview with his reflections on how the team at ASD Lighting have navigated the last four years and how the business has made the most of every opportunity that it's presented. Over to Nathan. I, I, th I think it's been a learning experience for everybody the last four years. Um, you have a lot of contingency plans in for when something goes wrong in manufacturing, when something goes wrong with your supply chain. I don't think we really had... You know, or, or anybody really did have kind of a, a set of robust procedures for what happens when pretty much uh, society falls down rather than just you know, a, a manufacturing process or a machine breaking down. You know, mm -hmm. Those things you, you prepare yourselves for. So I think probably a lot of it was just understanding our people, their needs, their, their, you know, what, what we could do to help support, support them, as well as what we can then do to help support customers, how we get... Um, goods to people that need goods mm. and and where we are i mean we the first two or three weeks during the pandemic everybody was just cancelling orders left right and center on us and you you kind of you know your order book goes from being really nice and healthy to a bit of a, a, a momentary panic not with through loss of orders just because people were just stopping them not knowing what, what was going on we were we were very lucky during um the whole pandemic because of this uh, part of the business is is very much in street lighting so after probably the first two or three weeks, the street lighting industry kind of realised that it was still able to continue. Um, it could still work because it was predominantly installing stuff in an outside environment. 
with small crews of either one or two working remotely. So they changed their, the industry changed so that it went to having, rather than sending two people out in one van, they were sending two people out in a car and a van to, to, to go to site. And actually that meant that a number of our customers probably increased their, um, their demand for goods on us actually. And we went through a really, really healthy period. Um, the balance shifted. So we went very much exterior lighting rather than interior lighting um, during the sort of the main part of pandemic. Um, but but we got fairly lucky in terms of the business. Actually, we had a a very good order book, all things considering. And we've got a lot of dedicated staff. And again, we mitigate that by going to UK um, supply chain where possible. So not everything we can we can purchase comes from the UK. Obviously not. Um, but we do an awful lot of manufacturing ourselves. And then on top of that, we use that local supply chain where 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 we can, um, where it's commercially viable. Um, are there any other projects that kind of come to mind of the last four years that you'd like to talk about? No, I mean, we've, we're doing lots. I mean, for, throughout the UK, we would have done over 10,000 units in, in the likes of Oxfordshire, um, Kent County Council, Buckinghamshire. We've had massive upgrades in Rotherham. So on our doorstep, we've done over 15,000 streetlights in Rotherham. There's a whole array of these that we're doing, and it's different solutions for different, for different people. So Wrexham and and Aberdeen, sure, we've had products going in. We're doing lots of work in Glasgow at the moment. So it's for us, it's been about actually just identifying that really good level of customer service. We've got a really good lead time, which is better than most of my competitors. And then we've got our, almost get your foot through the door because we had a good lead time. Then actually, people see that you've got a really good product behind that lead time and the service element. And then not that things go wrong, but if things do go wrong. You've got that UK backup, you know, where, you know so, so, someone like Rotherham, we physically are on their doorstep. You know, we've got, if they need anything to help or any solutions, we're, we're, we're right there. And there's not many of our customers that we can't get to in the next sort of, uh, you know, two or three hours away from the car. We've got a wider a range of sales support throughout the UK. We've also been growing our export business into the likes of Holland, again, where we're competing against, you know, large international companies. And we're going into kind of you know new markets in Holland, and we're actually achieving really good, strong growth success through using the right partners that kind of see our our vision of kind of being flexible, mm. uh, independent, and going for high quality luminaires. The, the push has been for years and years to reduce the take the cost out of a product, and actually by keeping the cost in and keeping you, you giving it something different helps. I always. I'll, I'll talk forever but I always imagine like you've got two business models that work for a restaurant I think you've either got the, the really nice high-end uh, restaurant which people are always interested to go to and do go to then you've got your Weatherspoons, which deliver kind of volume of food at a really good price and the, the companies that are, that are sort of in the middle some of the, the chains in the middle the ones that seem to struggle as as, as you know as the, the, and They'll come out and they'll maybe do really well for five or ten years, and then all of a sudden that chain disappears and it, it gets replaced by a new chain of burgers or pizzas or, or or chain. And I think what we've tried to do is maybe make sure that we're trying to get as close to that high spec as we can, but maintaining a, a good cost base so that it's a really commercially viable product. We're never going to be the cheapest, but actually you, sh- you can show that if you pay a little bit more extra this is what you get for that and the return is 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 really good i mean the smartwatch stuff we're doing at the moment i so said we're, we're working with them um, 
uh, an international government and their, all their agencies, their border force, their security controls, um, because of some of the solutions that we can do where we can we can draw effectively draw lines onto a onto a uh, onto an image. So you and I could be on either sides of a fence, and we can happily go about our business. But if you cross cross the fence, it'll send an alert or it could send an email. It could it could send a, an audio signal. And we're doing a job in. We're looking at a job in Ireland, actually, with um, a, a job to do with suicide prevention. We've got a number, a number of bridges where people are, are jumping off a bridge near um, near the outlet to the sea. And so what we're doing is we're drawing effectively two lines. If you lean across the bridge, which you might do if you were just walking about, you know, as you would, um, it kind of sends a little warning signal to um, a lifeboat station that's just on the mouth of the river and the sea, about 400 metres down the, the river. And... Um, that sort of sends them a little trigger to say somebody's actually gone very close to the to a, a point that they're concerned about, but it's only like a little alert. Then there's a further line drawn on the imagery to say actually somebody's gone beyond that that line. At which point we've got thermal cameras then that will look for any heat within the water. So if somebody's going in, they'll thermally track them because obviously it could be nighttime and if it's choppy water you can't see people and things like that. And that all sends then signals and, and images straight away to lifeboat station to sh- for thermal cameras to track them down. And we've been doing it with um, network rail in the UK. If you walk across a railway bridge and you stop in the middle and look over, that's kind of normal behaviour. But if you step back and go to the middle of the, the bridge and, and you kind of then walk forward again and go to the edge and then you step back, you can do learned behaviour and artificial intelligence on it. And actually it starts to send an alert and for network rail, we've been looking at doing audio for them. So when somebody's triggered it three or four times, a little message might play just to say, look, are you OK? Um, somebody will come and check you're OK. And actually just the message itself is enough to kind of kick people out of what that moment in time that they're thinking about. So technology is moving forward with what we do. And if we, we, if we monitor how many cars are coming down the street with, with cameras and imagery and how fast they're moving, we can adjust the lighting levels accordingly so there's all all of a manner of different things we can do um, and it is just about trying to set yourself slightly apart from from the competitors i love that so thinking about um the future for asd lighting considering the technology sustainability and how those conversations are affecting the growth of the company where would you like to see the business in five years from now for about six months now we've been trying to recruit um a position which we've now filled and we've got so we've now got a uh, carbon data and sustainability manager so we've got a, a young lady Sarah Kane has joined the business because being a UK company we kind of knew we were doing good things mm. we knew we were using a local supply chain but where we haven't been so good is being able to show the real data of what we're doing so we've got somebody now that's coming in just to look at the data effectively initially to kind of go right this is currently where you are okay so we it's, I, I think everybody's using the word journey at the moment, but we're, we're at the start of that journey, identifying actually what, what are our emissions, what do what, and then once we've got some of that data, it's how, how do we make better choices of materials for our products? Can we reuse products in a different way? You know, can we do things that, that give us more sustainability? And the other the other role we've been looking for to recruit is a social value um, manager, somebody to actually work with local communities or on tenders where we're being asked to, to put a social value. Um, to things and again if you'd have said five ten years ago to us well you need a supply 
you know, somebody that's going to deal with the environmental side of your supply and somebody that's going to deal with the social value of your offering. So well, they're not they're not kind of credible things, but the the marketplace is evolving, the world is evolving, and it becomes something that you can do. And we're a UK company, and actually, you know, employing two hundred people in a factory that contribute to the local economy and to the sandwich shop across the road and to the supermarket down the road that makes a big difference and it's a bit like I mean we've got a lot of people that are related to each other in the businesses it's, it's it is very much family and when you come to things we've happened really and people want to do more remote working you start to lose that interaction actually you've got to you know bring people together in some way to keep that kind of that that different ethos of your company so I think in in five years' time, I think we'd like to know exactly where we are and how much more environmentally friendly we are in five years than we are today. Don't think we're in a bad place today, but we would like to be able to really know, do you know what, this is where we are. Yeah. This is what our ambitions are. This is what our goals are. And actually, the company as a whole really are, you know, they are invested into it. They are kind of, it's not a tick box exercise where you just say, oh, we'll just tick this, we'll tick that, because me and some of my colleagues in, in the other departments could pick some boxes but actually getting somebody in that um, and in the case of Sarah she actually genuinely she sort of eats and breathes, breathes it she's kind of very much she's got that kind of um, you know uh, eco-friendly mentality and, and lifestyle so she you know the things that she's looking for as a company she's doing that as in her lifestyle choices so which rather than just somebody like me that would be thinking well actually if we we're more environmentally friendly we'll sell more and she she wants to be more environmentally friendly because she wants to be more environmentally friendly as a, as a human being and I think that's that's where we want to be we've got a meeting this week to talk about some of the things we'd like to do for being 40 and I've got all the managers coming in and we are going to talk to them about what can we do social value wise can we get kind of almost a committee of people to look at charitable events and do some more we do a lot with the Rotherham um uh, with the Rotherham Trust um, and we'd like to do some more sort of things. Actually, a number of our staff have always done it. It's like, can we bring some of this uh, as a business and actually do some events together and sort of, you know, um, I've got a real thing. I've, my, my little boy's got autism. Um, so he's diagnosed with ASD and I work for ASD Lighting. And he was diagnosed within about two weeks of me joining ASD. So I've always said, we, I've, I've always wanted to do a, a, an autism charity event. Um, we, we, had, we had a lady pass away probably six, seven years ago now. Um, and uh, it was uh, with Septis. And we, so we've had people do fundraising for that. So we're just wanting to kind of do a little bit more company fundraising because, one, it will raise the profile for the charities that are involved. It actually brings people together within the business across departments and they get to, to meet each other and spend time with each other. And, mm. and, and it brings some really nice kind of traits to the business and it gives it a, a, more of a value and an image than just kind of we're not just here for customers business we're here to kind of leave a, a better kind of uh, footprint on on the people we work around and we we minimize our impact but if we can leave it in a better place I think that's what we'd like to try and do. From what you said ASD is um, moving in a very positive direction as a leader for the rest of the manufacturing industry and that is very inspiring to listen to.
I found ASD Lighting's involvement in the Suicide Prevention Project especially poignant. It's easy to gloss over the impact that the manufacturing industry can have on society, but we believe that these three companies, as well as the many others that we have the honor of learning from, are pushing themselves to be the change the world needs. So we'd like to extend a special thanks to Dan, Michael and Nathan for sharing how manufacturing can go beyond the operation. From us at Manufacturing Today, we hope you enjoyed this episode. To stay up to date with key developments happening across the industry, why not subscribe to our newsletter? You can find out more at www.manufacturing-today.com. See you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Fine Light Media. We'd like to extend a special thanks to our producers, Daniel Baxi, Alex Chisery, and Danielle Champ, our sound engineer, Paul Gillings, Amy Jilks, our guest booking manager, and our editor, Libby Hammond, and assistant editor, Mary Float. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Finite Media and its team. 